All right, you guys. Hey, we're going we're gonna to dive into the scriptures right away this morning. We, uh, we are finishing up our series, and if it's your first time with us this morning, we've been in a series uh, titled Relationship or Religion, and the sub- subtitle of this series has been Confronting the Chains of Legalism. So as we open up our Bibles, if you didn't bring your Bible this morning, we're going to have uh, scriptures and slides up on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, But this series has been based off of summarizing the Christian faith in two to four words. How could we do that? Because sometimes in church we complicate uh, Christianity and sometimes we forget what it's all about. But it's interesting because one of the best summaries I feel like I've ever heard about the Christian faith is simply that Jesus wants relationship, not religion. So um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes we can get so caught up in religion and sometimes that can bind us up in something that we call legalism. So we've always kind of started every, every part of the series with the definition of legalism. So that'll be up on the screens. And, and legalism is simply just defined as this, strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. And um, in this series, we've been just trying to figure out how do we get to the bottom of the Bible that we read? How do so many different people with, that read the same Bible get so many different conclusions? So we've been playing with this idea, and um, our goal is really just to see a really clear picture of God and why maybe we exist on this earth. And if, if, if we decide to be people that are followers of, of Jesus, what does that look like for us? And is that complicated? And, and, and when we come to the Bible, um, we live in a day and age where, where we can be thoughtful about the Bible. Um, because we live in a day and age, once again, where anybody can Google anything they want about the Bible and kind of cherry pick and begin to label uh, Christianity based on different pieces of the Bible. So we've been really kind of breaking it down in terms of how do we interpret this thing called the Bible? What does that look like? So really quickly, we're going to kind of just break down week to week what we've done in this series so far. So week one, uh, we started off this series in, in, under the assumption that you and I are average Joe Bible readers. I went to Bible college, but the expectation should not be on the common average Joe follower of Jesus that they need to go to Bible college to, to live this thing out and to have good Bible reading practices. That's my heart. I remember going to Bible college and thinking to myself, why did I need to go to Bible college in order to learn some of the knowledge that I learned and really apply it to my faith? So one of my big heart, one of my, the things that I'm passionate about is how do we bring the, the content and the quality of our faith within the local church and really light a fire underneath people to get connected with the principles and the ideas of God. So week one, if you missed it, we talked, it was titled Biblical Theology 101. Here's the two bullet points that we got from week one. It's this, put yourself in the place of the author and the original reader. When we read the Bible, man, there's a massive cultural gap. We live in 2018, and we're talking about ancient time. We're talking about ancient Near East. We're talking about a time and and a different place that really is hard for us to relate to. We're talking about authors that wrote specific writings to specific people. So first and foremost, we need to start with the Bible, and we need to start with the context. We need to start with the culture. We need to get ourselves out of some of the, the mindsets that we have and really just begin with the Bible and unpack it from there. And the next thing that we talked about that week was, understanding that God is revealed progressively throughout the Bible. We see God in the content of the entire Bible, but through the narrative of of Scripture, God reveals himself progressively. 
It's not like at the beginning of creation, like, Jesus is like, hey, my ministry begins. No, like, we see Jesus, we see the ministry of Jesus later on. We see God revealing himself progressively, and we see right off the bat, God reveals himself in Genesis chapter 1, the beginning of the Bible, as Elohim. And then we see different names as God reveals himself progressively throughout the narrative of the Bible. That's really helpful to understand in the ways that we interpret the Bible, that this is a story. It's, it's, it's a historical story that unfolds and relates to us today, but it's way different than our culture. So we need to step outside of that and get out, outside of some of our cultural biases. And then we kind of went into week two, which began to address, address Christian culture even more. Um, and in week two, we talked about this, and we, we made the conclusion that the best interpretive conclusions are ongoing and informed. Uh, meaning this, that we can't make our decisions about the Bible in a one-time Pastor said it, YouTube told me, vacuum. And we live in a society in a day and age where that's, that's, that's kind of how we live. Where it's like, well, I heard my pastor say it one time, so that's what I believe, right? Rather than understanding that we have a relationship with God, that God's word is active, alive, it's breathing, that we've had so many amazing archaeological studies up to this point in history that have helped us interpret the Bible and come to different conclusions, deeper conclusions. But here's what we know with this ancient document, with many different ways to interpret, man, we need to be people that are open to ideas that maybe sometimes we get dogmatic in and understanding that, man, when we surround ourselves with other people, interpret the Bible together, man, we glean from other people and some things that other people see as God reveals specific things to us as well. So not to be so rigid in our Christian culture of, man, we heard it one time, or one time I heard this or that, but rather doing biblical interpretation in community and sharpening one another through each other's perspectives. Then in week three, we talked about common filters. We began to unravel common influences that clarify God's capacity versus his character. We talked about, uh, for instance, we talked about God is in control. Many people use that phrase, and if you just use that phrase verbatim, you would say that, okay, if God's in control of everything, that he must be in control of evil. So we talked about the difference of capacity versus character and how sometimes a lens gives us an inappropriate view of God because of some of the things that we've heard or the phrases that are, have become Christianese. And then we also talked about the church's opportunities versus obstacles. If you believe that the earth is going to hell in a handbasket, you are going to be a person that sees more of the obstacles in the way rather than the opportunities that the church of Jesus has today. So we address some of those things because those things get over our lens of how we see and we interpret the Bible. Then we moved on from that week, after we got all that stuff out of the way, into a, into a message titled Chronological Covenants. And this is the big idea. As we interpret the Bible, we have to understand that the ancient world functioned on covenant agreements between two parties that are legal and binding. Each covenant typically had a history of how the parties walked out the covenant together. This body of literature is called a canon. And the main conclusion that we made when we investigated this is God acts in accordance with the covenant he is in. So if you're reading something out of a specific portion of the Bible, we have to understand what covenant was God in with his people during that time. Because that's going to help us understand why God acts specifically the way that he does in that specific instance or story. There's some scary stories in the Bible when you read it. When you get deep into the Old Testament, you realize, man, that's kind of a crazy action that God made. Well, first and foremost, if we understand the covenant that God is in with his people during this time, it's going to unlock why God is acting the way that he is. And we broke down in that message, which I think is helpful to set the stage for this morning, the three main types of covenants we see in the Bible. First type of covenant is a grant covenant, a covenant when a greater and lesser person came into covenant 
and the greater one took on all the obligations. The lesser one only needed to receive the covenant. We think of a covenant like uh, the first covenant that God makes with Noah. He just gives, he says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. The whole world's going to benefit from the fact that I will never flood the earth ever again. That is what we would call a grant covenant, where the one party says, I'm going to take care of all of it. I'm going to do all of it. It's on me, and these promises will uh, be true, right? Then we have another type of covenant called a kinship covenant, which is the next main type of covenant. This is a covenant when two equal parties come together, as in a marriage. Each party took on a small list of obligations in the covenant. This type of covenant had a small set of obligations and was very evenly divided between the two parties. A kinship covenant was also referred to as a parity covenant. So this is one where both people have to kind of keep their end of the bargain, right? There's two parties involved here where it's like, hey, this person does, this party does this part, this party does this part, and it's a kinship covenant. And lastly, we have another type of covenant that was common during this time called a vassal covenant. A covenant when a greater and lesser person came into covenant based on the greater one's ability to destroy the lesser one. Instead of destruction, the greater one offered the lesser one safety in exchange for the ability to collect taxes and tribute, take slaves and so forth. Typically, this happened when a king conquered a nation and offered the people of that nation their lives in exchange for a level of servitude to his harsh rule. As a result, in this covenant, the greater person had all the power and the lesser person had to fulfill a large number of obligations. A vassal covenant was also referred to as a suzerain covenant. So this is the least advantageous type of covenant. It's basically one where it's like, well, we're, we're a small nation. We just got conquered, and uh, we don't want to die, so we'll, we'll do whatever you want. Bigger, larger, greater nation, right? That's, that's the typical scenario of this type of a covenant. So let, let's move on, and let's break down the main covenants of the Bible that we've addressed in all the weeks leading up to this week, right? Week five, we talked about that first covenant, the Noahic covenant, which was a grant covenant that God made with, through Noah for the world, right? Then in week six, we talked about the Abrahamic covenant, that, that this, this grant covenant that God promised through the line of Abraham, saying, man, you're going to be a means to a global end, that your promises will be, that I'm promising that through your family line, through the multiplication of your family, I'm going to do great things, right? Once again, we see a grant covenant. Then we get to week seven, and we talk about what's known as the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. Now, this started, as we investigated in this week, as something that God offered. It said, hey, be my priesthood, be my people. And God's people were like, nah, we'd rather have a mediator. And that's where Moses became this mediator. And what was once a grant covenant now was downgraded into a kinship covenant. We have the Ten Commandments being given. We have this massive moment that many people who've read the Bible are familiar with. But what was set up was this kinship covenant where two parties uh, had obligations that they were supposed to keep, right? And then we know uniquely this transitions into what we call a vassal covenant because God's people do what humans normally do. They're not able to follow through. They're not perfect. They weren't able to keep these, these commands that God had given. So when we see Moses handing off the leadership to Joshua in the, in the Old Testament, this, they also, what was culture during that time is they had to reinstate the covenant. Did the people, were the people faithful as the party? And, and Israel was not. So they had to reinstate the covenant, and it turned into this less advantageous type of vassal covenant. Um, and then we looked at in week 8, the Davidic covenant, and this was a covenant where God made many promises to King David that through his family line, the Messiah would come. There was all these benefits that we talked about. And now, finally, here we are. We're at week nine, and we're going to talk about the new covenant. And I'm so excited this morning, you guys. Like, I'm just, 
I, I, I'm just so excited about this topic, so excited about the truths that God wants to just inform our hearts and our minds this morning. And I'll say this too, if you missed anything up to this point, um, follow us on our YouTube channel, subscribe. Uh, you'll get updated. All of our messages have been recorded, and our video recorded, and so check it out. If you missed it, man, I just, I, I just truly believe that this is going to unlock so many, so many things in our hearts when it comes to our faith and how we view the Bible and how we interpret it and how we be effective followers of Jesus and how he sees the world. So, and then last but not least, we are, uh, we are doing something called Conversation Sunday in a couple weeks. Mark your calendars, December 16th, Sunday, December 16th. We're going to be reminded in our bulletin this next month that that date's coming up. And we're going to come together that Sunday, and we're going to answer questions that you've had during this series. Now, if you want to ask questions up until that point, go for it. Uh, go to our website, poncacitychurch.com. Click on events. There's a little box in there for you to ask anonymous questions because, man, some of this stuff has really been mind-bending and, and brain-bending for me and shaping my faith. So I'm going to assume that many of us have additional questions as well. We're just going to spend that Sunday answering and addressing some of the questions that maybe went unanswered in this series as we kind of create a conversation uh, on Sundays. Does that sound good, everybody? Cool. All right. So uh, let's let's pray really quick, and then we'll get started. We'll dive in. Lord, Thank you so much for the stage that, that you've set by your grace, um, Lord, just to, to unlock more understanding of your love and your grace today. So, Lord, would we be those who set our hearts and our minds under the new covenant, Lord, what, what you've instated, Lord, the, the covenant that, Lord, we reap the benefits from. And, Lord, we understand that you act in accordance with the covenant that you're in with us. And we're thankful for the newness of this covenant that, Lord, through your death, burial, and resurrection, Lord, you set up. So, Lord, help us be faithful in understanding, Lord, the truths of you and what it means that, Lord, you have given us a new covenant. And we are partakers of that covenant this morning, Lord. Break the chains that maybe exist of religion or, or, or legalism in our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name. And everybody Said. Amen. Uh, before we begin, uh, there's a book that we have available in our library this morning, and, and for the future we might sell out, I don't know. But this book's called Irresistible by Andy Stanley. This is exactly what we've been talking about. If you want to take a deeper dive, this is the book. I would just encourage you this. This book has been so impactful uh, in my life. I would say if you're reading any book, drop it and prioritize this one because this one is going to shape and is going to be kind of an addendum to all the things that we've talked about in this series of really clarifying, hey, what is our faith all about? Like this is going to be a manual uh, for our church, like for the future of how we interpret the Bible and how we think about our faith and what it means to be New Covenant believers. So Andy Stanley, he's a a pastor in, in, in the Georgia area and a great guy. His dad's Charles Stanley, who's a legend in the faith. But this guy wrote a book that's just quality work in terms of what the gospel means into our culture today and how that impacts us as believers of relating to a world sometimes it feels like Christianity is getting disconnected with. So um, check that book out, Irresistible. It's in our library for purchase after service. But let's talk about some thoughtful questions today about Christianity, first and foremost. Here's some thoughtful questions. Why are Christians behind the movement to post the Ten Commandments in classrooms and courthouses? Why not portions of the Sermon on the Mount? Why do we give children a copy of the Old Testament bound with the New Testament teaching them the difference? Why do some churches have priests? Why do Christians sometimes describe their pastors as anointed by God? Why do some Christian leaders constantly warn of God's impending judgment? Why would a Christian believe God judges nations at all? New Testament authors, along with Jesus, spoke of a once-for-all final judgment. Why would a Christian kick their son or daughter out of the house for being pregnant or gay? Why would Christian leaders declare a tsunami as God's judgment on a predominantly Muslim region of the world? 
Why do Christians judge non-Christians for not behaving like Christians? Why do pastors leverage phrases like the Bible says and the Bible teaches inadvertently giving equal authority to everything in the Bible? Why do we take marriage and dating advice from a pagan king with 700 wives? These are questions maybe you've asked. Maybe these are questions maybe you haven't asked, but these are the types of questions people are asking when they face the Bible today. And I I would propose the reason for that are these are concerns that come out of a confusion of blending the two major covenants in the Bible, the new covenant and the old covenant. Another word for covenant is testament, the New Testament and the Old Testament. This is the major break in our Bible that divides one half or two-thirds with the other last one-third, the New Testament. This is the label that we've really placed on our Bible to understand that there's two major differences. As we've talked about in the other covenants that exist in the Bible, many of these other covenants were just promises that then become fulfilled under this thing called the New Covenant. But there's this old covenant we got to deal with called the Old Covenant. And here's what I want to propose as we continue this morning, is Jesus didn't blend these two things together. He actually replaced the old with the new. So we're going to look at the Bible this morning, and we're going to talk about, first off, Jesus and religious leaders. Jesus always was confronting religious leaders during his time on earth. This wasn't a you know, Jesus, agree to disagree. That's how you interpret the Bible. That's how you've interpreted the faith, and we're going to move on. No, 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 no. These are the guys who literally set the stage for murdering him because he impacted them so much because of the way that he interpreted faith up to this point in human history. This wasn't a, well, yeah, you, you know, you Sadducees, you, 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 you have decided to interpret the Jewish faith in a different way. No, no, no. These people were furious with what Jesus had done. They orchestrated his murder. Jesus wasn't Judaism 2.0. He wasn't an extension of Judaism. He was instead of Judaism, which is why he got so under the skin of many of the religious people during his day. One of the most offensive verses in the Bible we're going to look at. And you, it's probably a verse that you just breezed on over. So let's, let's look at it this morning. Matthew 12, 6. Jesus says this. He says, I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. You might say, oh, that's not a big deal. You know what I mean? Jesus is saying he's greater than the temple. No, no, no. For the Jewish faith during this time, we have to understand the temple meant everything. The temple for Jews during this time was the centerpiece of all religious activity. It was the place where sacrifices were made according to the old law. It was the way that many people lived out the conscience of their faith. And for Jesus to step in and say, hey, uh, this is, rather than saying, hey, this is King Jesus' new palace. He's not saying that. He's like, hey, I'm the new king. I'm the new Messiah. He's saying, no, no, I'm greater. I'm greater than the temple. You know, history, Jewish history, and the Jewish historian Josephus, he wrote about people literally dying to defend this temple, this structure, when, when, when people prof- tried to profane it with other gods. Jewish history has shown that the temple meant so much that people were literally willing to die for it. And as we understand, and we understand the, the end of Jesus' ministry, willing to murder somebody that was willing to, 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 to say that they were greater than this very religious icon for the Jewish people during this day. This was so offensive. And we know the book of Hebrews, it affirms this idea in terms of 
the way that Jews related to this old covenant, this thing that reminded Jews of their history, of Moses being their leader, Moses leading them out of Egypt, so many great things that happened within Israel's history. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 8 that clarifies what, what Jesus is talking about. If, if, if literally he didn't add on to kind of this Jewish faith, but literally replaced it with something new. Hebrews 8 says this, the author of Hebrews, he writes, he says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. Since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. Hey, if the world's functioning great and God's heart's out there in the world, there's no reason to step into this newness of a covenant. The old one is fine, but we see a contrast. There's something old and there's something new. And then Hebrews goes on in verse 13, it says, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. The first one is obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. You know, this is, I would argue this is the greatest prophecy in the entire Bible right here. Hebrews 8, 13. Many times people point to the Old Testament like, look at all the stuff that gets predicted in the Old Testament, and then you see it come true in the New. What's amazing about this one right here is Jesus is referring to the temple. He's saying, this is all going to disappear. Actually, the disciples at one point, they asked him, what was about to happen with the temple? What's going to happen in the future? And he basically says, no stone's going to be left unturned. And he's standing in front of the temple. And what do we find out after the Bible was written in 70 AD, this massive event where the temple literally was destroyed. They, the, literally the Roman guards threw the stones into pits. There's been archaeological discoveries and understanding that, man, this was a massive takeover. The temple was destroyed. And what Jesus is prophesying here is probably the greatest biblical prophecy to show the legitimacy of what happened after the Bible was written and how it unfolded in human history. He's predicting the end of ancient Judaism because the temple, the documents, the ways that you worship God according to the ways that it was set up was absolutely obliterated. He says there's going to be an end to this. And there's, the, the good news is there's something new. There's something greater. This is going to become obsolete, but there, there's something greater. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. I love when Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is describing himself as the fulfillment of what was required under the old law. But then he says this, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now, I've heard this verse used in such a way that people are like, Well, that Jesus, he's affirming the law. He's affirming the law right there. He's saying that none of this will pass away because everything in the law, he's affirming it. He's saying we need to still follow it. I don't know about you. How many of you guys eat bacon? I don't know about you. How many of you guys aren't animal sacrificing? I don't know about you. That's nice to say in theory, but in Christian practice, we're not sacrificing animals. We're not following the law every iota. So when we look at this verse, we can't just say, well, heaven and earth haven't disappeared yet, so we must be living under the law. Then why did Christians in church history change their practice completely? We, this is where good biblical practice comes into play. Well, if Jesus obviously affirms the law. Well, okay, well, why are you eating bacon then? Why aren't you following it? Because we have to understand, and this is what's so helpful, heaven and earth disappear. Many of us think of future for that. 
But heaven and earth was represented culturally, if you study ancient Judaism, that people literally believed the temple was a collision between heaven and earth. This is where God's presence dwelt. So for them, many times the phrase heaven and earth in the Bible represents the backdrop of the temple. He's affirming and saying something needs to be accomplished. And when that thing gets accomplished, talking and prophesying about his death and resurrection, man, this isn't going to matter anymore. This isn't going to exist in the same form that you expect it to. He's saying there's this event that we know he's going to spur on in human history that's going to change everything forever. Jesus is bringing the law to a designated end. Really makes sense when we understand that after Jesus breathes his last breath, he speaks out the words, it is finished. I love what John, Dr. John Piper says. I'll say this. Um, I'm not a I'm not a, like a huge John Piper guy. I respect him as a theologian, but I really re- respect what he says about Jesus. He says, Jesus was not just another member in the long line of wise men and prophets. He was the end of the line. Not abolished. Obsolete. Not abolished. Obsolete. There's better promises under what Jesus is setting up. Not old as in ancient, we think of the Old Testament, we're like, yeah, it's old, it's, it's ancient. No, no. Old as in obsolete, meaning like there's something new that has replaced it. Think about ancient history. Think about our history as a nation. We don't refer to the U.S. Constitution as the old Constitution. Why? Because it's still in effect. Yeah, it's old, but it's the Constitution. When something's being referred to as old in the scripture, it's being referred to as old for a reason. Because it's old as in it does not apply in the current context because there is something new Jesus is introducing that distinguishes this idea. It's not old because of being ancient. It's old as in obsolete. This wasn't a blend of Judaism Jesus advocated for. It was a replacement. Bad things happen when you blend the old and the new covenants. Look at church history. You get the prosperity gospel, the crusades, anti-Semitism, legalism, exclusivism, judgmentalism, 14th century Catholicism, don't touch God's anointedism, God will get him and other isms. There's a big problem. But let's keep going on with Jesus. His agenda, because he wasn't done offending. Let's, let's go to uh, one of the greatest places in Scripture. You know, communion, the, the communion table. We celebrate communion as a church once a month, um, reflecting on the body of Jesus being broken for us by taking of bread and, and juice that represents his blood. And we, we point back to this Scripture, but we're going to have to look at this from a, from a different lens in terms of what Jesus was replacing, Right? Not adding on to, but literally replacing. It says this in Luke chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, the Passover, for, for, for the Jewish faith, man, the Passover represented literally this moment where God allowed his people to escape the harsh rule and slavery in Egypt. Moses, let my people go, you know, the whole, the whole gamma. This is Passover. This is what it represented. And he, and he starts, Jesus starts talking about Passover with his followers. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, 
Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Next slide. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. For us, we read over that. We're like, okay, that's great. Jesus, yeah, you know what I mean? You got to understand the audience here. The conscience-based family line of Jewish people that have followed God through a particular lens for so long. Can we just, let's imagine this for a second, maybe in our shocking context of how, you know, we relate to God in terms of some of our traditions. We're doing this thing called the Christmas Candlelight at the Ponkin Theater this year. We're so excited about it. December 23rd, we're going, we're doing two services, and we're celebrating. Why are we doing it? We're cel- we want to celebrate God big. We want to remind people that, man, Jesus is the light of the world, and he's empowered us to go and be lights of the world as well. Amen? But we're really celebrating Jesus' birthday. Can you imagine for a second if I stood up here this morning and I just said to us as a church, I said, you know what? I think it's great that we're doing this Christmas candlelight thing, and we're going to celebrate Jesus' birthday, but pastor's going to kind of shift a little bit, and we're going to, we're going to switch gears. And rather than celebrating Jesus' birthday at the Christmas candlelight service, we're going to celebrate mine instead. We're going to celebrate mine. Okay, guys, so we're, it's going to be a big birthday party for Pastor, and, and that's what we're going to do. And hope you guys bring some balloons and gifts for me, and um, it's all going to be about me. Uh, there'd be a lot of meetings, one particular to our district supervisor uh, about my leadership. Uh, we'd probably have some meetings with the, the church council of uh, Pastor TD. I think you've gone off the deep end, right? But you got to understand, this is the same thing Jesus is doing with the Passover. He's saying, guys, you've lived a life faithful to this covenant for so long, but now you're reinterpreting it through me. The Passover is no longer, Moses is not mentioned, the law is not mentioned, all of the key players in the old covenant, you're going to do this thing in remembrance of me. So we have to understand how earth-shaking and shattering this new replacement of a new covenant was for people who had been faithful to the Jewish faith up to this point. But he's reinterpreting it back to himself. I am the fulfillment, he says. Do this in remembrance of me. This was the type of impact that Jesus was making on the Jews. This is why people were offended. This is why people weren't too big of a fan of Jesus' interpretation and as he claimed fulfillment to what was old because he was replacing it with something new. This is not a new covenant between God and an individual, as was the case with Abraham and David. Not a covenant between God and a particular nation, as was the case with Israel. This was the big one. This was the means to a global end being fulfilled one. This was it. This was setting the stage for Jesus to do what only he can do and having an impact in the world that we live in. So let's talk about this from a global perspective, right? Because Jesus commissions the church to go out and to be the church. After he resurrects, proves himself to be true, he, he, he sends his people out. And this is what he says before he resurrects. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Let's look at this maybe through a, through a different lens of, of the covenants. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We got that one up on Okay, there we go. It says this, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Not Moses. The authority is not Moses. 
not the law, all authority in earth has been given and heaven has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything, not what Moses has commanded, not what the law has commanded, I have commanded you. He's reinterpreting, he's replacing what was so key to people's leadership and ideas about the Jewish faith, and he's replacing it with himself under this newness. He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this makes sense, once again, why the early church changed their practices. They no longer followed Jewish ways. The early church began to change drastically the ways in which they related to their new faith following Jesus, which was this small cult in the day called the way. People considered it to be a cult because it was so radical because it replaced Judaism. It wasn't Judaism 2.0. It was viewed as this complete replacement. This is why Christians chose the first day of the week rather than the Sabbath on Saturday as their holy day. The day that the worship changed. That's a big deal. They rebranded Passover. Once again, it's not, this is Passover celebrated through the interpretation of Jesus. They abandoned animal sacrifice. Once again, you show up to church and we're not slaughtering livestock. They ditched circumcision. They dispensed with the priesthood that a priest needs to sacrifice on behalf of you and your sins. But rather, as a Christian, we know by what Jesus has done, we have direct access to God. The early church began to serve and pray for rather than persecuting their enemies. Once again, this is where history really helps unlock the context and this, you know, the behind the scenes of the Bible and what was happening. There's two phrases that are going to be up on the screen here, or two words. And these two words are so relevant to this conversation of the transition of the old into the replacement with the new. There was two main types of people that were enemies of the church in the early days of the church, in the early days of Christianity, Judaizers and antinomians. Now, who were Judaizers? What do you know? They were a group during the first century that wanted to drag the old covenant into the new. The greatest enemies of the church in early church histories in early, early church history, were the Judaizers, the ones that were trying to mix the covenants together. Read the book of Galatians. Paul literally is addressing the Judaizers. The whole book of Galatians is addressing people that are trying to mix the covenants together rather than understanding Jesus has cleanly replaced with his new covenant. So many times in the early church, this is the battles that they were facing against these Judaizers. We're trying to mix, mix, mix. And as we see throughout church history, man, people continued to mix. And there were some horrible things that happened that a lot of people point to in church history and are like, that's why I don't follow your God. Because of the mixing. But Jesus did not come to mix. It wasn't Judaism 2.0. It was a replacement with something new. Because the old had become obsolete. And then we have the antinomians. And these were the other side of the spectrum. These are the ones saying grace, 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 grace. Saying that there is no law. Nothing. I'm accountable to nothing, 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 nothing. Which is interesting because you would say, well, yeah. Okay, what Jesus has done, it's, it's a covenant of grace. It absolutely is. But we need, we need clarification. Are we accountable to anything based on what Jesus has done? 
Romans 7.4 is a great clarity, clarification verse to the antinomians. Paul writes, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So rather than not being accountable to anything, what the Bible is saying is we're no longer accountable to the law, but we're accountable to him, Jesus, his way, his authority, the way he sees and has interpreted the world. Jesus introduces something new. And if that's so, here's a radical thought that might shake up some of the religiousness within us that have been attending church for a very long time. If this is to be true, we follow Jesus, not the Ten Commandments, plus 603 other laws that were added to those ten. We cannot straddle two incompatible covenants. We can't do it. Because if you broke the Ten Commandments, you had to burn or kill something. That's not within our practice today. Why? Because we no longer are straddling two covenants that are incompatible. But Jesus has replaced the old with something new. There's a general principle of life, and it goes like this. New things don't generally bother us until it realizes it means of letting go of the old and the comfortable. Isn't that so true in our human nature? It's like, yeah, new, change. But then when it means we actually have to start letting go of some of the old, it, it, it becomes really difficult for us in our human nature. This is exactly what was happening with the Jewish people as Jesus was reinterpret, reinterpreting their entire history of faith and practice. This was difficult. This is why Peter was racist. This is why Peter was like, you know what? My family line of people, we've been doing this thing for so long, and God's trying to send them out to these people called the Gentiles, everybody else, the other. The ones that many people are like, you're not in on this. This is my God. And this is why Peter was so resistant in the book of Acts to take the message to those that he said, these are newbies. They haven't been faithful. They haven't been consciously leading through the history of the world up to this point, through God's ways and what he's instilled in this covenant and Moses and the law and all these things. This is why he was resistant. Because he's like, this isn't for them. Well, I've been doing this. I've been faithful. But we see in the early church, God gets a hold of his heart and uses Peter in such a radical way. But this sounds a lot like the modern church to me, you guys. This sounds a little bit like... Church people sometimes. I love church people. We're a room filled with, I'm going to assume, church people. You know what I'm saying? And this reminds me of when people are upset and resentful when we place an emphasis on those outside the room. Because we've been here longer. We've been here longer! Why? We're, we're it! Why do we care about that? Ugh. This is Jesus, though. You think you, this is unjust for you as a person saying, man, why are we putting an emphasis on the outside? Think about how the Jews felt. And think about what Jesus was asking of the Jews. You think it's just for your pain sometimes to think about, oh, I wish the church was about me. Think about what Jesus did to the Jews. Let me remind you, that's what Jesus did. He's the one who was asking Jews to say, I know you have this rich history, but guess what? It's not about you as a nation anymore. It's about the means to a global end. I'm doing something new, and I'm doing something powerful. Jesus did this 
very thing that we can relate to so clearly today, even in the modern church. So what about the Old Testament? What about this Old Covenant? What does that mean for it, right? Here's, here's I think, is a helpful thought, is that the Old and New Testament are not unequally inspired. Both the Word of God, but here's where they are unequal. They're unequally applicable. There's certain things that do not apply to us that applied to a certain specific group of people in that point in history. Completely equally inspired by God, not equally applicable. You can't cherry pick a verse and close your eyes and point to a verse and say, well, that applies to me. I need to go sacrifice an animal. No, not equally applicable. Equally inspired, unequally applicable. Or else we're going to mix things together and it's going to get really confusing. Our faith's going to get really confusing and complicated. The Old Testament is applicable through principles, not promises. Once again, there's different principles we can learn from the legends like Moses and Joshua. Some of these leaders and these stories, right? Man, there's so many great principles, but those aren't the promises for us. Those promises came to fruition and are interpreted through a new lens through what Jesus has replaced this point in history and how we relate to God with. I love what the Apostle Paul says to the Corinthian church when he says, use these stories, use your history as examples. These are examples for our faith. The way that we see how God related to Moses and some of these characters in the Old Testament. Man, those are great examples for us, but the promises do not apply because we live under this thing called the New Covenant. I love what N.T. Wright says. There's a quote from uh, N.T. Wright, one of, the, one of the great theologians, he says, the Torah, or the law of Moses at Sinai, there's like 50 names for it, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, okay, here we go, is given for a specific period of time and is then set aside, not because it was a bad thing, now happily abolished, but because it was a good thing whose purpose had now been accomplished. This is huge for us to understand. It's not like we're against this whole thing. We're not against God's history. We're not against what God did up to this point. We're just understanding it's not applicable to us. There's something new. We live in a day where we can reap the benefits of this new thing. So let's talk about it. What is Jesus' law? What was his commands? Well, first, let's go to Matthew 22, verse 36. Teacher, this guy tries to trap Jesus. He says, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Remember this whole fulfill idea? Man, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two. Loving God, vertically. Loving people, horizontally. And throughout Jesus' ministry, what we soon realize is he doesn't differentiate too much between these two. Rather than thinking of those things as a dichotomy, well... I'm going to love God and, you know, maybe I'm going to love people and love my neighbor as myself. Actually, he's saying, no, like, those are the two. If you're not doing this, it probably means you're not doing this. Those are one and the same. He's merging these two ideas together. And in Luke's account of this very story, the context is the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Samaritan, somebody despised. Who's my neighbor? This is probably what all the Jews were asking. Okay, love my neighbor as myself. Well, that's easy. I'll love my Jewish brother. Jesus says, no, no, no. Let me, let me expand the idea of who your neighbor is. And he gives an extreme example of a Samaritan who Jews despise. He says, here's who your neighbor is. Even the person that today you despise. 
Because if you're not doing this, guess what? You're not doing this. If you don't do this, this means nothing. Because when you love this way, you're loving me too. He begins to merge this dichotomy that has been abused through what the, 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 the Pharisees and all these people that Jesus confronts, and he begins to bring them together into a both and. Then we get into, into John chapter 13. It says this in John chapter 13, 34 through 35. Jesus says this, a new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I watched this video this week on Facebook. It was so funny. It was kind of making fun of a cultural Jesus in today's society. And this guy, he was acting like Jesus, and he's, you know, with the disciples. He's an actor, and he's saying, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. By the way that you say, Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, Christ miss! Big boy Jesus' birthday! Blah, 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 blah! And it was an extreme example to show that literally we have convinced ourselves that phrases like Merry Christmas and making sure we use the Christ in Christmas is actually what, how people would know that we are his disciples. By the way that we love one another. Verse John 15, 12. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Well, we're, we're about to see what that love looks like as Jesus dies for his people. John 15, 17, this is my command. Love each other. All people, equally, perfectly, and unconditionally. He didn't say, here's the 614th law. Love one another as I have loved you. Nope. He's saying, this is new. The other is obsolete. Second John, chapter 1. Five through six, just keep looking at this. And now, dear lady, I'm not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. Here we go. And as you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. What is the command? What is Jesus' law? Love, love, love. First John 3.23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Got to place your faith. Your faith is what makes you righteous. Placing your faith, belief in what Jesus has done gets you in the door. And to love one another as he commanded us. Let's keep going. First John 3.16. The other John 3.16, right? This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the, our brothers and sisters. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Yikes! Vertical, horizontal. When we don't do this, we're not doing this. Galatians 6.2, carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Once again, Jesus is placing a priority in the horizontal. The horizontal. How are we treating one another? How are we dealing with this? 2 Corinthians 
He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Romans 7, 6. By now, but now, by dying to what was once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Galatians 6.15, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. New, new, love, clarity, replacement. People say, what about sin, pastor? What about sin? Well, once again, there's still an ethics of Jesus. But what about sin? Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, when you sin, when you don't live up to your new creation, you know what it does? It grieves the Holy Spirit. Because we're not living up to the new identity that Christ is forming within us. We're not living up to the new creation. We're not partaking of this new identity and reality of what God has called us to. And here's what we know. If you continue to live that out, out of relationship with God, what's at stake is for you to forsake the faith that you've placed in him. To say, you know what, I don't believe this new identity. I don't want this new identity. Which is why God never forces his love upon his people. It becomes a choice, belief, and faith for us as the gospel is preached. The good news of Jesus, right? We are pre-forgiven and eternally loved if we say yes to Jesus. If we follow him, we place our faith and trust in him. But continued sin is not an issue of forgiveness. It can lead to a place where you reject it. But it's rather than living up to your true identity in Christ as his new creation. The issue here is that the vertical morality and insecurity about what God's done for you distracts us from the horizontal mission of God for the world. Jesus comes and he's like, stop focusing on the vertical. You know, here's what's interesting about vertical morality. Is typically when you're focused on this, are me and God okay? We ask questions like, well, is that a sin? How low can I go? We're not saying that, but we're kind of like, what? Is there anything I can do to kind of breach myself out of God's love? Or another question that we might ask for us or for others is, how high can I go? You know, I, do I need to worship like this? Do I need to worship like this? Do I need to have specific behaviors when I come into a, a church congregation? Is there certain things I can do to make sure that this is okay, that I'm connecting with this? Jesus is going, I've already dealt with this. This is why I came. This is exactly why. Why are you insecure about this? My blood covers you. It forgives you. This is why I came. This is why I bore the pain upon the cross. Is for this. So you wouldn't be insecure about this. So you wouldn't place religion over your life to say, God, are we okay? Are we okay? Jesus comes and he just deals with it. Even though we're not good enough, he deals with this. And he says, okay, I've dealt with this. Now guess what, church? Let's show people. Let's show people what worship actually looks like. Let's do it. Let's bring people with us so they don't have to be insecure about this. Religion makes us insecure about this relationship. Legalism makes us insecure about this relationship. God says, I've done it. It is finished now. The dichotomy that's no longer formed in your minds, this is one and the same. 
Isn't it interesting? There's this point in the Bible which really illuminates this for our hearts and our minds. People are trying to go to the temple to, to offer gifts. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. People are trying to do this. And he says, if you've offended your brother, don't do this. Go. Take care of this. If you've offended somebody, you take care of this. Then you come back. And then this is going to be right. He merges the ideas together. He's constantly confronting the idea that says, well, I can worship God. I can be churchy. I can be this. I can be that. While you're neglecting this, Jesus is going, no, 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 no. Those are my children. No, 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 no. If you love this and you're not doing this, nope. That's, no. That's not my heart. That's not the new covenant. Jesus is saying, this is Christianity step one. Your faith in me and knowing it is finished. Prioritize reconciliation with others. Prioritize the horizontal. Because you're going to be inviting people into this. This new reality where what I've done gives you a relationship with me. It doesn't have to make you concerned about this. He's simplifying this by matching it by what we as the church are called to do horizontally. You know, guys, this is why we have a generation with a lot of cultural suspicion surrounding formal spiritual venues. This is why we have a generation rising up of people that are saying, God, as a nation... If we only put the Ten Commandments at every courthouse, if we only did this, if we only instituted prayer and spiritual things, if only as a nation we did this, we did this, we did this. This is why we have a generation who's suspicious about this. Because Jesus has been saying, let's go do it. Let's go disciple others. Let's make disciples and let's get the kingdom of God into every nook and cranny of our society. Go and make disciples. Jesus was an activist for one thing. Did he care about a lot of the causes in our day and age? Absolutely. But if he was an activist for one thing, you know what it was? Discipleship. Go and make disciples. He spent his time in relationship with people that were to set the stage for a multiplicative world takeover through what he had done on the cross. The new covenant. We're going to end on this. It's a quote out of this book. So once again, drop everything and read it. I would encourage you. It's going to change your perspective. It's, it's shaping mine. It's changing mine. It's helping me understand that, man, sometimes I get discouraged when I look at the headlines and feel like I'm at a disadvantage for saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. This book helps clarify why what Jesus has done is irresistible. Andy Stanley says this in his book, Irresistible. He says, following Jesus would not be about looking for ways to get closer to God who dwelled out there, up there somewhere. Jesus' followers would demonstrate their devotion to God by putting the person next to them in front of them. Jesus' followers weren't expected to look up. They authenticated their devotion by looking around. But the shift didn't stop there. Conspicuously absent from Jesus' new command instructions was an overt reference to his divine right to require such allegiance and obedience. In what is arguably his most future-defining set of instructions, Jesus refused to play the God card. 
Even in this final, if you forget everything else I've said, remember this exchange. Jesus did not leverage his holiness, his personal righteousness, or even his divinely granted moral authority. Jesus leveraged his example, how he loved Jesus' love for the men in the room rather than his authority over the men in the room is what leveraged to instruct and inspire the men in the room. On a personal note, Jesus' love for you, not his authority over you, it is what lever- he leverages to inspire you as well. Be inspired this morning, church, by the fact that there's a God who sees you, knows you, and loves you. He's not holding a hand over you, getting ready to slap you because of something that you did wrong. But he's gracious. As Pastor Callie alluded to earlier, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. The men in the room would not see him seated on a heavenly throne. They would see him hanging from a Roman cross. It was his gory and gritty sacrifice, not some old covenant, keep your hands clean holiness that compelled his disciples to eventually take up their own crosses and follow him. Legalism. Let's look at that definition one more time. Strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. Jesus wants relationship not religion. He wants relationship with you. He loves you so much. He loves you so much that he just, he literally chose to die for you. He carried his cross. He was, died an agonizing death for you, for you and I. A love that gets defined in a way that's mind-blowing. Following Jesus is far less complicated than the religious law, but far more demanding for our lives. He's condensed it down to one idea, but man, that cost is massive. In a world where we see so much disunity, we understand how massive the cost is when we decide to be people in the middle that exercise the gospel movement of Jesus, his love, his grace, his forgiveness under the new covenants. Jesus has taken care of the vertical. So church, who's ready to do the horizontal? Amen. Can we pray this morning?